Welcome back everyone to R2Cast number 21. Today we have Charlie Jacoby, if you want to say hello there, Charlie. Hello there, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, so hello everyone, Wallace. Uh, yeah, good to see you again. Uh, over the last few weeks, I've actually tried to invest in the podcast, which maybe long-term viewers will be very happy with because this is now 21st episode and it's still done on my iPad, sat on a few boxes. But I have actually got... Uh, fancy mic now um but it doesn't work because i got the wrong cable so uh hopefully in the next few episodes you should be seeing a mic and maybe a bit of a better camera and as you're seeing it's a different background um jess and i have just bought a house so everything's sort of up in the air and we're just seeing what's working and whatnot so on to all of the get rid of all that boring stuff and and get into sort of what we're here to talk about and that's charlie um so charlie is from the fuel sports channel on youtube now, a lot of you guys listen to this, uh, it's, it's a lot of farming and agriculture. My, my real reason to do this podcast is to see people in the rural sector, and it's a meat-producing industry. I don't really see why agriculture and field sports are so separate. You would think they should really come hand in hand, and I really wanted to bring in that, that industry to let, to let you guys hear about it. So, um, yeah, well, welcome, Charlie. But what's your sort of background, Charlie? Are you from field sports or uh, did you come into it later in life? <clears throat> yeah, so I think like many people, um, I started out shooting, you know, when I was a kid and fishing. And uh, I grew up in rural Somerset uh, in the Quantock Hills. So we had, you know, it, it, a lot of people think that, uh, you know, God's own country is Yorkshire. Uh, I mean, he may have been born there, but he came to live in Somerset because we have everything. You know, we've got great deer stalking, hunting of all kinds uh, that our rivers have got fish in. Um, you know, we've got Exmoor. It, it's it, it's the most, possibly the most all-round county for um, for field sports. And, you know, we, we definitely have the best shoots in the country. Bad luck, Yorkshire, bad luck, Wales. So, yeah, perfect place to grow up. But I always wanted to be a writer. You know, I always wanted to be a, a, a hack uh, and uh, in the 1980s, I, I joined the shallow end of the media and rose like scum. Uh, and uh, I now sort of sit on the surface of it, um, nearly 40 years later. Uh, and, you know, this is a time when we've seen it go from newspapers and, and magazines through to digital uh, and you know, principally YouTube. And was, was that media based on the industry or just all, all sides? Oh, it's, uh, I mean, it's all kinds of things. Uh, yeah. I mean, my, my first thing, I, I, when I left school, I got a job writing books, um, uh, ghostwriting uh, about the royal family. So, you know, really kind of coffee table stuff about the queen and the queen mum, things like that. Um, I've got, I read a book about the bridal ways of Britain. Uh, then I, I, I mean, writing, writing books as a sort of, as an 18, 19 year old is <laughs> probably not the best paid job in the world. So um, I started to look around other things I could do. Um, I am still, after 30 years, the uh, property correspondent for the Jewish Chronicle. Uh, you know, that is a gr great shallow end position. Uh, and uh, and I, I did some bits for shooting times. I was a news editor for a while and went off and launched things like Sporting Shooter magazine, Sporting Rifle. Um, but the thing, I mean, magazines, you know, when you went to a game fair in, in, the, in the 2000s or the, or the 1990s, magazines really kind of, they were everything. For, for people they you know they practically told you who to marry um and then the internet came along and spoiled everything 
So uh, <laughs> by the time we got to 2009, when we launched Field Sports Channel, people were out of love with magazines. And over the last 10 years, we've been incredibly lucky, very fortunate. People are in love with YouTube. You know, people feel like they own, the viewers feel like they own their YouTube channel in the same way they felt like they own their magazines 20 years ago. Yeah, which is great. And, uh, you know, for, for any viewers from Yorkshire, we do still accept you, by the way. I know you've been called out entirely there with Charlie, but... Uh, <laughs> was it, you're, you're, you can mean, I say, you're not, you're not an obvious Yorkshireman, just, you know... just. I'm, just I'm definitely the... not from Yorkshire, no. Uh, <laughs> very much, uh, very much Scotland. <laughs> I don't know if I said Scotland, even more Scottish there, just to push that, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, you said you, said you, you, you shot as a kid. Was that just with parents, Charlie, or is that... Uh, um, yes, uh, you know, you 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 look you look to parents to kind of get you started there, don't you? But uh, in those days, the best fun was me with my four ten and my buddy with his twenty eight, and we had the run of a local farm. It was uh, walking the hedgerows. Um, it was you know trying to trying to bolt rabbits, sneaking up on uh, rooks in rookeries and things like that. So it was it was just pest control, and then suddenly just you know, discovering the joy of a dog. My goodness. Yeah. Your, you know, your your day out got even better with a dog. So it, it was it was just enormous fun, and um, you know we would uh, shoot uh, what we were supposed to shoot. Um, I remember the day we shot a pheasant out of season and got into an incredible amount of trouble for that. So you know a, a lot of sharp learning curves. Um, I remember the day when uh, I forgot to clean the four ten, or you know I was too lazy to clean the four ten. And it had a little rust down the barrel, and I thought, "Oh no, I'm never, I'm never going to get out of this one." Uh, and then, you know, a bit of quite a lot of action with a with a, a bronze brush seemed to bring it back to life again. And I don't think anybody found out about that. So, you know, there was, there was a lot, a lot of that. Um, it was fairly typical, but it was a, a, a leisure activity, um, and uh, and the job, the job was um, was writing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think these learning curves come with us as kids, especially kids that are brought up and. In the countryside, we maybe make some mistakes here and there, but they, they carve us as a person. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it's the amazing thing about shooting is it, is it, it teaches citizenship and responsibility and things like that. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm not a, I, I, I wasn't a tear away, but I wasn't a, I wasn't a good, good schoolboy by any means. So um, actually, shooting probably did me a lot of good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I should probably just jump in, actually. We've, we've been mentioning field sports for a while. What is field sports? What are uh -huh. we good, good, good question. Good question. Because yeah. in 2009, we tried to come up with... The story behind Phil's channel, just very, very quickly, uh, is uh, David Wright, who's the guy who reads the news on Phil's channel, who was, you know, in a gutter when I found him. I mean, he'd be nothing without me. But um, no, I'm joking. He... <laughs> He was, uh, he was a talented uh, uh, news producer at ITV, and, and I came from this kind of specialist consumer magazine. I did, we tried to collide these two things to create, basically, something like Shooting Times on telly. Um, and we had to give it a name. So we could have gone down the shooting route. <clears throat> um, we could have... Uh, country sports was a word we could have used. Obviously, Blood Sports TV wouldn't have um, really appealed to our core audience. So we came, we, we hit on field sports and it's a slightly weird word because in 2009, I mean, certainly in America, and you know, you're dealing with YouTube, it's a global thing. In America, field sports was track and field, so it's athletics, what we call athletics. I think 
in the last 10 years by constantly repeating it and by this you know fabulous audience that is available on youtube we have recaptured the word field sports um as a slightly pointless thing to have done we could have lived without capturing the word field. i'd have i'd have preferred to have recaptured the word cruel or sporting or something like that you know in terms of moving the argument forward but field sports it is and um so it, it, it literally means hunting shooting and fishing so yes, it is. It is looking at fishing as well, and that sort of thing. So and, and, and we and we get very kind of you know um, into knotty arguments for some of our viewers about hunting. Is to some of them is people in red coats, and to others it's the American version. I mean, Google. We're all mildly ruled by Google these days. Uh, believes hunting and shooting. Um, we got so here's an example. We did a film for the Countryside Alliance very early on about a flower show. That was raising money for the countryside alliance and you know that's that's how the countryside alliance made money in those days was things like flower shows and uh, somebody from the masters of foxhounds association watched that film and uh, and it's so you know very nice this country house a nice lady just selling flowers it's all for the countryside alliance isn't that wonderful and at the end of the film youtube said suggested videos george digweed shoots foxes now there's nothing the masters of foxhounds association hates more than somebody who shoots foxes yeah so his reaction was to order the Countryside Alliance to tell us to take down the film about the flower show because he was getting fox shooting video suggestions after it. Yeah. I mean, there were so many things wrong with that. I didn't <laughs> know where to start. So I just said, <laughs> okay, if that is your understanding of the internet, that's fine by me. <laughs> So you've mentioned sort of the transition from from magazine uh, onto YouTube, uh, Charlie. There's been there's been quite a few changes for the channel over the years. You started uh, on streaming originally before you went onto YouTube. Could you tell us a bit about that? I should actually mention when, when I say this, I'll be in trouble if I don't. My uh, my partner's dad, he insists on me calling him father-in-law, but my partner's dad, uh, Robert, has been a fan since back in those days. So uh, he'll be very happy to. That I've told you that. <laughs> You're kidding. Robert, Robert has been watching since we were on streaming. He has indeed. And, and you know, when, when we go to the house, um, the house we've bought is maybe just five miles away from, from theirs. It's it's never not on. Uh, he sees every episode probably twice. So, you, you know, most of your CPM is probably boosted by Robert. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's why we get... Well, look, thank you, Robert. That, that's fantastic. I mean, to, to watch that, to watch the really early stuff is... Is very very cool. That that's that's amazing. <laughs> so back in two thousand and nine, you know, for people like me and David, YouTube had, as far as we could tell, something to do with skateboarding cats. You know, it wasn't really yeah. a place for long form television like we we. Um, in fact, strange enough, it's still not really kind of grabbed the long form television idea in the same way that Netflix has. But the, the cats have moved on from skateboards a bit, which is good. Um, and so we started off by renting server space, which is fabulously expensive. Um, and uh, we got our, you know, our several thousand viewers very, very quickly. I remember sitting in a car park on August the 12th, 2009, watching the viewer numbers clock up on the, on the sort of the online um, analytics thing. Uh, I was with David. We had just been filming grouse that day, grouse shooting. Fairly exhausting day. And we were basically both a bit catatonic and going, my goodness people are watching this that's amazing but i mean in those days a few thousand which puts you in competition with the magazines which themselves were selling a few thousand no that was good when you hit youtube 
I mean, our audience now is nine and a half million individual people who uh, tune in, have tuned in over the last year and a bit. So we can reach those nine and a half million people for our clients via Google Ads. Um, and the numbers are just staggering. It's, it is the, it's the biggest number that, that our market has ever seen. And, you know, yeah. I, whether you, go, you know, the advertisers go out through you or us or shooting show or whoever it is, I really urge anybody in the world of shooting, take advantage of this number. It's, you know, that might end tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, is a, this is a good time. Um, yeah, so um, it, it, YouTube was the way to go. And, and YouTube itself, you know, it, it was, um, it's a fairly robust American firm, surprisingly. Uh, it had just been bought by Google in about 2005. Um, it's, uh, it's often accused of being anti-gun, anti-shooting. There are some policies that Google inherited from another firm it bought earlier on called DoubleClick, which uh, are, you know, don't allow gun advertising, ammo advertising and things like that. But YouTube in itself, we have always found to be um, pro-shooting, actually, pro-hunting. They engage with us. We help. There's a thing called the Creator's Playbook. Um, we helped write that with Google, with YouTube. Um, uh, if you are a YouTuber, read the Creators Playbook. It, it has got everything you need to know to, to get your channel up there. Um, and, I mean, uh, what, what Google wants to avoid are the really obvious kind of landmines. <laughs> Actually, landmines is one of the things they want to avoid. Uh, it's the backyard <laughs> backyard bomb makers. That's That's what they don't want, you know. So don't go on to YouTube and show 14-year-olds how to make a handgun or you will be banned. That is, that is obvious. There are a few things where they get it wrong after that. I mean, there was a period about five years ago where they actually accidentally banned loads and loads of air gun channels because in the US they hadn't quite clocked that that was, you know, air guns were a thing. And although they're corporate and they would never express regret or anything like that because it would open them up to lawsuits and all that stuff. Um, I, I think they acknowledge they made a massive mistake there. I mean, air gunning is, you know, is 10 times the size of, of, uh, of, of shooting sports, in, certainly in the UK. So um, YouTube has been good for us. Um, and uh, three years ago, we um, uh, hired somebody called Meredith Grant, uh, who is a magician with other social media. And we've started kind of moving into Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter, LinkedIn, all the rest. Um, and yeah, that, that also is a kind of insurance policy. You know, I've just been very nice about YouTube. It's possible that some nutter will move into YouTube and say, right, we're going to ban everything we don't like, I don't like. Um, I think it's really unlikely. But if that were to happen, you know, we have places to go now, which is good. I think, you know, I, I consume YouTube's probably the, the service I use most. Um, TV's not, I think, you know, TV killed the radio star. I think YouTube's killing the TV star. And that, you know, Netflix and Prime and stuff still being consumed heavily, but YouTube's so easily consumable. You just binge and next video, next video. I don't see YouTube dying and I don't see channels like yourself struggling because it's it's an income stream for google you know and and the more they have the, the better it is for them as well but it, i hope that doesn't happen anyway as well uh, but the, the sort of putting more eggs in more baskets has always got to be a win instagram's so difficult <laughs> is it do you do, you, do you, we, I mean, we we were surprised that uh, you know instagram is 
you can sort of get a, a lot of you know a lot of people to watch your stuff on Instagram. Not, not an enormous amount. I mm-hmm. mean, the th- the thing, the problem we find with Instagram and Facebook really is, and I'm just getting quite technical now, but um, <laughs> they count a three second view as a view. On YouTube, you count yep. a nine second view as a view. Yep. So basically, take a Facebook video view count, divide it by ten. And that's roughly speaking your YouTube video view count. You know that that we 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 find that kind of that kind of thing. In terms of income on YouTube, I think they do derive a lot of. Uh, I mean, some of the big gun channels in America, you know, Iraq veteran eighty eight eighty eight people like that, uh, they are in the billions of views already. Yeah. So uh, I mean, they 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 are bigger than us. Um, uh, they they tend to be about guns rather than hunting. But uh, it's, I think in world terms, we do a channel ranking, we're about fifth in the world across guns and hunting. Right. Um, we're, we're, we're biggest in Europe. Um, uh, but I, I, don't, I don't think you should mind canning things as well, even if they're making money. I mean, uh, you know, Logan Paul, um, they oh, slapped him pretty hard uh, for, for bad behavior. So yeah. If, if you step out of line, you know, it's been strange that um, we've had a lot of very good quality brands in shooting media. Magazines like Shooting Times, we've all heard of, The Field. They have really failed to grasp the nettle of the big, I mean, as one publisher described to me, you know, we are now sea urchins in a pool where there are three very big sharks called yep. Facebook and YouTube. And, and so, you know, they, they've kind of been frightened of, of that. I think you have to look at YouTube and Facebook as enablers, rather like using a printer. You know, if somebody's got to print your magazine, YouTube is where you put your video out and you just have to cope with that situation. Um, publishers who bought printers never really seem to prosper from it. So, um, uh, uh, 20 years ago uh, I, I, if YouTube chucks us off we will find a home yeah well I'm sure yeah you, you've proven before that you're quite adaptable when you're saying the, the fifth biggest in the world and the largest in Europe is that purely on subscriber metric you're at 300,000 uh, actually the, met- the metric we uh, the metric we use is obviously the one that's most favorable to us you know when it comes to <laughs> yes <Yeah, so laughs> um, as, as you'd imagine um, yeah. uh, basically viewers actually what we use is there's a site called social blade uh, and if you're interested yeah. in seeing how big um, social media is uh, you know a channel is or a, a, yeah. a, a what do they call them uh, an influencer is go to social blade and they have they have the subscriber numbers they have the view numbers uh, but they also have a kind of social blade ranking and yeah. we find that surprisingly accurate because you know you will have channels that have been moribund for five years but they're still picking up good views because five years ago they put out good stuff but there are no advertising prospects so you know they will get a, a d minus on on uh, on social blade and then you've got people who are putting out regular content getting regular numbers of viewers who are obviously active and a good advertising prospect well they get a, an a plus so just, just going into the channel itself then, Charlie, what's the sort of schedule? Are you posting how many times a week? How does that work then? Okay, so um, well, we've tried for a variety of things, but the, the one constant, uh, as Robert will know, is 7pm uh, <laughs> Wednesday UK time is uh, Field Sports Britain, uh, which is a long-form magazine programme about hunting and shooting and occasionally fishing. And um, it's... A magazine program is composed of five, six, seven, eight, nine items, uh, all linked together by me standing in a field. 
And uh, off the back of that, we have spun various ideas that have worked in kind of short bursts, sometimes in quite long bursts, um, but have, uh, well, with the exception of one, have not really managed to kind of gel as a, as, as a kind of commercially supportable show. So Field Sports Britain remains the mothership um, for, for everything else. Um, I mean, over time, we've done Field Sports Africa, which, you know, the trouble with doing things in English, English is Americans think you are, as one of them put it, quirky at best. So there's uh, not much you can do about that. You know, you're always going to be, you're always going to be Hugh Grant, really, aren't you? Yes. Um, bugger, bugger, bugger. So um, you have to, you know, you have to look at other ways of doing it. We went to South Africa and we did a film, we did a series of films with people who are actually part of the hunting industry out there. So it wasn't kind of fat Americans shooting things. It was South Africans explaining behind the scenes what it's like to you know, run safaris. And that was, I thought, fabulous. You know, you've got some amazing scenery, wonderful animals, great guys uh, speaking with a South African accent. And it was pretty popular. And then Cecil happened. And, you know, even the gun companies were a bit put off by the reaction to Cecil. Uh, which is tricky because if you're a gun company, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> you you can't you shouldn't be, but they were. Yeah. So, Field Sports Africa stopped after a while. We couldn't get the support for that. Field Sports Ireland did really well. Um, Jason then, then well moved to England and had a baby, so that stopped. But he's going back to Ireland, so that's okay. But my biggest disappointment really was Airheads, which uh, ran for seventy episodes. It's all about air guns. Yep. Doing brilliantly, got the backing of all the big air gun companies, Day State, Air Arms, BSA, uh, and uh, Crossman. And it, they just had a bad few years, I'm afraid, the air gun yeah. companies. So they, they, had to, they had to pull back a bit. Um, I would love to get Airheads restarted. It was, you know, air guns on YouTube are amazingly popular, apart from anything else. It was a, yeah. you know, an open goal for audience. Um, and personally, I absolutely love fishing. So we launched Fishing Britain. <laughs> You know, we, Hal Morgan, the really great um, uh, fly fisher who ran it, was fantastic. Aaron Jones, um, his uh, cameraman still works for us as production editor on Field Sports Britain. Uh, we just could not. We got the support of Die where we, we couldn't maintain that support. I think we made the mistake of running it weekly. We should have run it monthly. That would have been better. Um, so the things that have sustained, the things that have worked are... A field tester, which is a kit testing show, and you know that goes right to the heart of what advertisers want. So actually, that's that's fine. You know, I, I think that's a good one. Um, the the program that goes out for the members and uh, and the shareholders are our field sports nation group of supporters. Uh, it's called Field Sports Extra, and that's based very much around sort of competitions, behind the scenes, that sort of stuff. Um, and and so it's quite easy to make off the back of Field Sports Britain. That sustained. And then there's a weird thing, which um, is not exactly a program, but it's a sort of a, a good series and it fits into Field Sports Britain and that's Field Sports News. So we were, were able, thanks to the support of the Field Sports Nation, to go and hire a good quality journalist, um, Ben O'Rourke from the South China Morning Post, where he used to be a foreign editor. And he's come over. And so he's a classic, typical hack, you know, he came over here, he kept doing, when he started, he kept doing stories about, um, he talked about the, uh, the hunters and then the conservationists. And I was going, no, 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 the hunters are the conservationists. Okay, so you're talking about 
hunters and the antis, or the antis and the conservationists. Oh, okay, okay. And then he'd go off and forget and do it. You know. But he's got there now. So <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting how, how that, that, uh, that kind of, um, that's how Fleet Street, how the modern media thinks. Um, yeah, and so that's, that's where we are today. Field Sports Britain, the big one. Field Sports Extra, Tuesday nights. Um, Field Tester, monthly. And we've got some surprises coming up in the autumn, obviously. So I, I, I probably should have said that. So surprises coming up in the autumn will be here because this won't be out till October, November. Can't remember, but hey. So yeah, it's so, enjoyed so, the so, so we've got surprises coming up probably about now. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, just, just, just on the uh, South Africa side of things, there, Charlie. First off, that must have been great. Uh, Africa as a continent just fascinates me. Um, but you mentioned Cecil there. I think most of us know what Cecil is. But could you just tell us a bit more about Cecil and why that caused you some trouble? <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, Cecil was, Cecil was a surprise. Uh, and, and if you're going to have a kind of roundtable chat, it would be fascinating to get the political department of Safari Club International into the room. Walter Palmer would be interesting because, golly, he suffered really, really badly. Yeah. I would love to get a representative of, of one of the companies who, you know, one of the big supporters of what, of shooting media so there are various sectors you know we all know about the gun companies they're the, they're the kind of the big advertisers ammunition companies clothing companies one of the really big sectors is optics companies and if you are a zeiss or a swarovski or a leica you know you you have a lot more to your business than just selling hunting scopes mm-hmm. and and you know zeiss is mostly meditech um se- se- uh, semiconductors actually zeiss is is mostly about bringing life into the world <laughs> and here is its heritage of making rifle scopes which do the opposite so that, that's difficult Swarovski as we know is mostly about making sparkly magical unicorn glass figures and they have this optics killing unicorn side you know and then Leica is mostly about you know cameras and photographs for social conscience and they go off and kill deer so they have got a big problem all three of them um and 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 that you know that, and that's just three examples, and then you have a uh, something like an outpouring of hatred for a dentist from Illinois who goes off and shoots a, a, a lion. Now, first of all, there's been a lot of rubbish about the the shooting of the lion, and some positives that have come out of this. Okay. For example, the Oxford group that had put the collar around it. Um, some people say they were forced into position. Actually, they willingly and happily have pointed out that trophy hunting is incredibly good for African animals. I don't think their message has managed to get through, but things like that will really help get that message through. You know, Amy Dickman, who is a top level biologist at Oxford, is a great, I mean, she might not think of herself as an advocate for hunting, but she is a great advocate for hunting. Um, As far as the, um, uh, as far as the, how it affected the market goes as far as how it affected what we put out goes it it really meant africa was off limits and that was just so painful it was the most perfect place to film um so well nothing you can do you know if you we can't afford to fly there on our own pocket money so we we just had to kind of slow down everything we're doing in, in africa i hope it comes back you know i hope the world gets it we're already seeing uh you know people from the I don't know what you call it, the, the woke end of the media, 
Um, there's, there's a book out by uh, a Financial Times writer called Henry Mance about animals and our relationship with it. And he goes through and he can, you know, he, he, he is really, he is a real softy. You know, he doesn't want, uh, he doesn't believe in any kind of farming. He barely believes in crops, but he does believe in trophy hunting. So good. Thank goodness for that. He concludes that hunting works for wildlife. So, you know, that, that is a good thing. Um, we see an enormous amount of, of institutional hatred for hunting. The guy who wrote uh, the DEFRA 25-year plan, Dieter Helm, uh, he wrote a book uh, called Green and Prosperous Land. And it's incredibly logical, analytical. He's an economist. You know, it points out that farming, basically, on, in pure economic terms, should end. And okay. it'd be interesting to talk about that with you. But you, know, <coughs> he, you, can sort of, you can see his maths. Then you yeah. sort of look at the countryside and go, no, that's not going to work. And uh, but but he he then he just lands into hunting for no reason at all, and you go what what's why? And it's just because he you know in the, at the Islington dinner parties he goes to that is the attitude you know that that's why people think oh, like my news editor you know they're just the language they use has been shaped by Cecil. Um, and and when it comes to it, there's there's a thing we have called social license, and we need to re-establish the social license for shooting. So we need, to, you know, if you're walking down the street and somebody bumps into you and and, you, and they say, "What are you doing at the weekend?" And if 30 years ago you say, "Oh, I'm going to go to a shopping mall," they go, "Oh," and if 30 years ago you said, "I'm going to go shooting," they might have gone, "Oh," they they like that, you know. And now, you know, it's exactly the other way around. Shopping mall, good thing, and shooting, mm, not so sure. So we've got a, probably five years five or six years to re-establish social license if we possibly can that that's our mission and when we mentioned trophy hunting <clears throat> I, i've spent a lot of time thinking about trophy hunting more sort of actually in scotland and you know, we're not shooting many lions in scotland from what i understand and this this idea might not translate to lions but the way i see trophy hunting is um it, it solves overpopulation and it brings in money to the area because you've uh, sort of capitalised on that market of maybe not necessarily rich people but people willing to pay to get that shot uh, the trophy hunting thing is the sort of the trophy is the part the person that's paying that gets but the, the, the benefit in the local area is, is huge now I don't know if that's the case with lions and correct me if that whole idea is wrong but is, would you say that's how trophy hunting works and why it you know <clears throat> So there, there are various things that feed into that. So starting off with, with the difference between deer and lions, very obvious difference. Um, <laughs> but uh, in Scotland, uh, the Scottish government has decided you have an overpopulation of deer. All right. Whether or not that is right, right or wrong is a different debate. But let us say the Scottish government is broadly in favour of shooting deer. I'm not sure they're broadly in favour of a state shooting deer. I think if, if they had a completely clean slate start, they'd probably make shooting deer a civil service operation. But they are where they are. Uh, and it is absolutely true to say that 20,000 grateful stalkers, that's paying guests at around about £500 a time, receive heads to put on their wall, 20,000 heads from... Uh, they're from professional guides in Scotland every year, 20,000. So, you know, if you're going to ban uh, trophies, which is what Zach Goldsmith, Lord Goldsmith, wants to do, yeah. you, you have to have a view on, on that kind of thing. Um, now, there's a few other things to consider before we get on to lions. Yes, let us accept, for example, there are a lot of deer, 
if there truly are a lot of deer, and there's a Texan the other day, they've got a huge feral hog problem over there. And, uh, and he's a ranger. And he, he said rather memorably, we can't shoot our way out of this situation. You know, so it, it is possible to have so many deer, you cannot rely on the sporting community to do it. But then again, we are pretty good at managing the countryside. I mean, I think farming has got some horrors it needs to face up to, but actually the, the, the gamekeeping community, you know, pretty well every tree or, or a hedgerow you see from your train window has been put there for hunting or for shooting. That, that's the point. Now we're going over to lions. Um, and you have a similar idea that you know, lions are there because people are going to shoot them. They're really fabulous cornerstone species pay uh, 20, 30, $40,000 to shoot a lion and you will pay for a lot of conservation. I always think, you know, when these poor people are being monstered in the, in the, the press for standing grinning, grip and grin shots of them holding onto dead animals they've just shot. In that moment, those people are conservation heroes in their own minds, in the minds of the people around them. They have just basically paid for this estate to have all its wonderful wildlife. And then suddenly they're being vilified for being evil murderers. And it's just, you know, you can, sort of, you can imagine looking at it going, but I'm a hero. <laughs> I'm not that bad. Um, the lion situation is, is fascinating. Um, we have got to come to grips with the, uh, the different ways that people around the world deal with animals. That is something, you know, I've discovered on YouTube is there is no real consensus on hunting uh, worldwide. So in America, they, they go to Africa to decorate their houses, basically. Yeah. In China, where I've been shooting, they like to wound animals. They like to injure animals because it keeps them fresh on the way to the kitchen. It's perfectly logical. Um, and of course, here in the UK, we walk slowly towards pheasants until they fly over guns. Now, if, you, if I explain pheasant shooting, as I have to some of my American friends, some of my Chinese friends, they go, what are you talking about? That's crazy. That's <laughs> what, what kind of day is that? And, and similarly, we don't like necessarily what they're doing. So first of all, accept there are lots and lots of different views. If you can accept that, you've got in Africa uh, a situation where, well, there are about 24,000 lions worldwide, about 8,000 of them, maybe even more than that, are for hunting. Now, that ranges from big ranches down to horrible little cages, canned hunting. And there is certainly a, a sort of lion process where it, it pops out of its mother, it's petted by tourists for a price. So they're the cute baby lion tourists. It is shot by an American for a price. So that's the canned hunting. And then it is cut up into parts and sold as medicines to Chinese. And you're kind of in a lion farming area there. And that, is, that accounts for a third of the world's lion population. So right now, South Africa wants to get rid of that and actually physically slaughter 8,000 slaughter one third of the lion's population you've got to you've got to start making a judgment you know there yeah. are i can see i can see the arguments for both sides but in my opinion uh, i think it's more up to us to get over our our problems with the utility value of lions and and ex therefore have a wider gene pool for lions than to um just go around going i don't like it therefore it shouldn't happen you know i think that's that that's where we should probably go yeah i think you're right and i think i think a lot of people are guilty of i don't like that so let's not talk about it whereas the way i see it is certainly listen to what you said there that the sort of american mentality you mentioned of decorating a room you can see why folk would have a problem with that i personally totally have a problem with the chinese mentality that you mentioned um 
but I see no issue with the the, the British version. Um, on that though, and, and I should also mention you said uh, that farming has a lot to answer for in the conservation side of things. I agree with you. Uh, so if you're wondering where where I stood on, I agree totally, wholeheartedly, uh, <laughs> because I'm talking. Zoom won't be showing Charlie, but he's laughing at me at the minute. Um, <laughs> and th but the other question I guess I've got for you is you've said about um, it seems to be a, a mainly American market people coming over I mean it's obviously not going to solely be but from what you're saying it sounds like it's, it's a large part of it uh, and sort of in the same sentence you've said they're going to decorate their house and also they feel like heroes so there must be a pretty there, there must be some percentage of them that don't feel like heroes they just they are just doing it for the trophy or would you disagree with that uh, I think I think you kind of get both. You know, if you go over there and as one, as if it was a Danish hunter, I said, "How much did your rhinoceros cost you?" And he said, "Oh, about a farm." So <laughs> it, okay. it costs an enormous amount of money. Um, by by any measure, hunting creates uh, the, the cash that runs, you know, the best of African conservation. It's no coincidence the northern white rhino died out in the in Kenya where hunting is banned. The southern white runner is actually doing surprisingly well in South Africa where hunting is legal. We, we tend to characterize the southern African hunting countries, South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, uh, Zimbabwe as wildlife winners. You know, you look at somewhere like Kenya where wildlife populations are crashing, not entirely because they are anti-hunting, but just because there is no reason to hang on to the wildlife and there's such an enormous population boom. But Kenya is a clear wildlife loser at the moment. And that, that is a terrible shame because it's a great place for wildlife to live if it weren't for you know, the enormous number of shambas. Uh, what was the question again? Well, <laughs> just, just sort of the, the idea of the, 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 the person who shot Cecil. Yeah. Um, yeah, Cecil was alive for some reason. I thought they were okay. the same. Yeah, uh, so yeah. good point. Right. I so I, I was with my, my friend Fausto Atiria the third in the United States, and he has a sable antelope horn on one side of his desk, you know, one of those great curve oh, yeah, yeah. lovely. It's, it's curve, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, he wanted the exact same on the other side. So he basically looked in the catalogue until he found an identical horn to go on the other side. And uh, and he went out to Africa and he shot that beast and uh, he got the horn and his desk is now complete. So that's what I mean about going to Africa to decorate your houses. Now, at the same time, he poured $20,000 into yes. that conservancy. And OK, that elderly sable buck fell over, but an awful lot of animals did very well out of him. And if he took a photograph of him with his sable, good on him, I say. It's, that's for us to get over. Do you know, it's funny you mentioned this, sort of, this, this problem of, of uh, do you find in the comments below your podcast, there's sort of something I've noticed is, is even shooters who are, you know, by comparison to anti-shooters are quite non-judgmental, but even shooters, they have a thing about sort of saying, this is where I am and, and these are the people who are better than me and everything below me should be banned. <laughs> that, that sort of seems to be a thing. I think I think one thing that we're noticing here is your channel is very much bigger than mine. I have 104 subscribers, so I'm not really getting that many comments. But uh, I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I think we're we're quite bad for this is where I stand, and everything below me is wrong. I, I very much more prefer to hear the reasons and and such. And, and these things don't just happen 
very rarely they just happen for the crack. You know, uh, there's there's normally something to back it up. So yeah, I agree. I think there is there is mentality that I just I just wondering uh, after the, the sort of two points. Um, what was the next thing I was going to jump on? Yeah, uh, how I mean, you're mentioning sort of world travel and stuff for this. How has COVID impacted field sports in general? You could focus on the UK. You could focus on you know globally. I assume it's had quite a large impact on sort of the trophy side of things, for sure. <clears throat> yeah, um, so uh, the 1950s, we've all just enjoyed the 1950s. It's um, <laughs> It's been extraordinary in some respects, uh, especially in the UK, which, you know, we have, we have noted, we have, our market has sort of narrowed a little bit to being much more UK because we can only go to the UK. Yeah. Uh, you know, having Zoom calls with our European clients is not absolutely ideal. Um, the toy market has been amazing. You know, we've got a guy called Tim Pilbeam who does a lot of stuff for us. His motto is the man who dies with the most toys wins. Good point. Um, and so people have got a lot of furlough money in their pocket and they've gone out and they have bought that new gun they've been promising themselves. You know, I, I know some uh, uh, firearms licensing uh, uh, authorities across the UK have been on furlough and have been unable to process applications. But I bet you over the next two years, we're going to see a massive rise in the number of people who own guns because uh, as the Home Office released figures, shooting has been amazingly popular uh, over the last couple of years. So people have gone and bought the kit. The losers are the hospitality industry, you know, the, the, the hunting lodges. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think it has been absolutely disastrous for, for many of them. Um, the choices when you have land in Africa are, do you farm it or do you put wildlife on it? The only reason to put wildlife on it is if people are coming to either see it or shoot it. And shoot it makes a lot more money than seeing it. So if people aren't coming, you start eating the wildlife, I'm afraid. Uh, so I don't know what kind of wreckage we're going to discover when we actually go down there. When people go back to the lodges they love and, and find out it's almost bereft of animals, you know. But as long as animals haven't gone extinct, you know, we can restock. Um, and uh, and these, these big ranches, these big conservation areas in, in Southern Africa will get their animals back in a few years' time. It's just a kind of tragedy for the time being. Um, similarly, you know, the shoots that are taking place, I know shoots that have stopped because of COVID and are unable to continue. I don't know yet of people who've actually grubbed up woodland and said, well, we're going to move to farming because there's no point carrying on doing the shooting thing, it's too risky. I'm sure that will happen, but uh, I, I would say we'll probably they will probably, if, if they, you know, if they're not actually bankrupt, they will probably be able to cope with a bit of extra woodland around until they can get that sheet re-established, until, you know, some other operator comes in and says, I will run it for you or, or whatever it takes. Yeah, well, I mean, my girlfriend's on a shoot and she, she they were cancelled last year, sort of, you know, November-ish time, uh, but they're back this year, which is good. Um, but yeah, so how, just, did, how did they cope financially? I mean, did, did they... Do they have a kind of shoot bank account and it started to go into the red and, and that kind of thing? Do they do a cash call on their guns? I couldn't tell you. Uh, I'll ask them and I'll let you know, but I, I couldn't tell you. Um, it's, it's, I, it's quite a small place to shoot. I don't know if, if, if it's just like a... Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to comment. <laughs> I don't want to say the wrong thing. I honestly don't know. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it's impacted everything, really. I mean, uh, certainly looking at agriculture... 
the, the impact's been for the most part positive, you know, and it's hard to say that really and, and with what's happened, but prices are through the roof and stuff like that. I don't know if that's the case with venison and, you know, trout and it's, stuff. It's, I don't know. Venison is an absolute disaster because most venison is sold with the restaurant trade and the restaurant trade's on its is basis. It? You know, so uh, so you know that that is a really bad one. Um, but then uh, take for example the game fair uh, took place at the end of July uh, in England. People had a lot of cash in their pocket from furlough. Still, you know, they haven't all gone out and bought little red sports cars. Um, they still had enough to go out and buy a lot of things on credit cards. However, they also have over the last year and a half made an awful lot of cash in cash. Um, <laughs> And they haven't been able to spend that on Amazon. You know, you cannot use cash on Amazon. So people were turning up to the game fair with rolls and rolls of notes. It was a, it was a funny year for, for standholders. It was a slightly smaller game fair in terms of standholders or in terms of the perception of how many standholders there, there, there are. But those who came absolutely raked it in, both in cash and, and, uh, uh, and credit card. Was, was that a restricted... A you know, in any, uh, no, because it's it was all after in, you know what's been referred to as Independence Day. So, of course, uh, you're I mean, that's every, right. Course, yeah. Everybody was pretty sensible, um, <laughs> and uh, my favourite one was <laughs> there's a uh, do you know Guns on Pegs? Yes, I've heard of them. Yeah. Don't, yeah, the Guns on Pegs always have the best parties. They and they had the most. Basically, it was a rave, as far as I could tell. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, a couple of days later, I know somebody was at the party um, <laughs> sent out to. A picture of his uh, negative COVID test under which he wrote the single word miracle. <laughs> That's quite good. <laughs> no, it's, it's great to see these things happen again. I mean, yes, we've got to be wary of COVID and stuff, but it, it's, I mean, every show we have or are supposed to have uh, isn't happening this year, but we are, we're a bit behind you guys. We are, oh God, it's next week or something that things go to. Let's not say independence, that's the wrong word, but freedom. <laughs> Free, that's much more Scottish. Could you, could, you yeah. paint, could you paint your face blue and just shout freedom for me? That'd be, that'd be ideal. Freedom! <laughs> um, um, so you've, you've, got, you've got the Scottish Game Fair um, at Schoon, which Schoon, at yeah. the time of recording is, is upcoming, isn't it? So um, uh, I think I, I'm, I'm coming to that. But, or by the time this goes out, I would have been to that. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> if nothing goes wrong. I... Uh... I might see you there. I don't know whether we're maybe planning on going. Uh, I don't know if Jess might be quite keen, but uh, I might see bring, you there. Bring Robert. That'd be fun. <laughs> shall do. Shall do. It will get to meet his hero. Hopefully, you'll be nice to him, and it won't be like one of those meeting this hero problems. You know, <laughs> it uh, always is. Everyone who meets <laughs> me is terminally disappointed. As David, David White will tell you. Yeah. Oh, do you know? I've been. I've just not been happy ever since I met you last. Ever has been hell. Um, no, <laughs> uh, typical, typical whinging Scotsman. I mean, you know, you're just trouble, <laughs> all of you. I'll take that one. I'll take that one. Um, you mentioned sort of the, the main venison trade is hospitality, restaurants, hotels, that sort of thing. Uh, I'm I'm a strong advocate for for basically any British produce. Really, uh, what what are we doing to get venison and and trout and you know, pheasant on the plates of, of the masses, if you will. <clears throat> uh, so t to get that to happen, you need you need ground swell. Uh, yeah. And actually, that, that is happening. I'll, just, I'll come on to that in a sec. So traditionally, what we did was, um, going back to the 1990s, I remember a photograph we got at Shooting Times of uh, somebody from Besk. In those days, it was pronounced Besk. And uh, they were handing uh, a, a brace of pheasants in feather 
to an MP and you saw the face of this MP was, what am I supposed to do with this? You know? <laughs> um, so that was, that was the kind of the basic problem with early, early pheasant marketing. Um, we had the uh, uh, game to eat campaign, the taste of game campaign. One was Countryside Lance, one was Basque. Uh, they, at some various stages throughout their lives, did good work and got good funding. Other stages in their life didn't get funding, didn't do any work. Uh, and then that was all rationalised a few years ago into the British Game Alliance. Actually, that's not quite true. There, there is still a game to eat and there is still a taste of game, but the British Game Alliance is the kind of, is the focus for the mass marketing of game, particularly pheasants. Um, and I mean, one of the problems that popped up was we used to sell a lot of um, pheasants to uh, factories in the Netherlands and Germany to turn into sausages. Um, and that market just fell off. So what are you, you going to do? You need to find new big markets. And the BGA has, you know, scored notable successes. It's gone out and found uh, markets in the Far East and, and things like that. Weirdly, China, where pheasants come from, there's not really a big market for, for pheasant. Okay. Um, but that said, uh, you know, you talk to think about Hunan and, you know, bushmeat markets and things like that. They're quite local. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But that said, you know, China is a very, very large country indeed, and it's got a, a fifth of the world's population living in it. And so you only need a very small speciality meats market and suddenly you have a huge pheasant market. So well done them. They've, they've done very well. Um, I think it is widely acknowledged that the best uh, kind of individual uh, attempt has been the Country Food Trust. And I mean, that, that is one of my particular favourites. The amazing Tim Woodward who uh, launched that. Uh, it's you know, on the face of it, from a media point of view, it's it's horrific. It's it's yes. uh, basically it's patronising. It's it's rich people giving pheasant soup to tramps. Actually, okay. you could probably pronounce it tramp tramps. You know, <laughs> it was hairy fellas. Um, and but uh, actually, it's incredibly practical. It's uh, it's taking pheasants, it's turning them into soup, one pound a bag, and the bags go to food banks and they go out to the public that way. And we all know pheasant amazingly nutritious. Uh, yeah. you know, high levels of protein, very low levels of fat, um, you know, will not kill you like like, like yes. some meats. So yeah, that's that's the thing. I think what's really say, what's really helping at the moment is um, something I've noticed over lockdown. Another lockdown thing is a lot of people have set up little game meat businesses. You know, um, we had a, a horror story during the Blair years where a lot of local abattoirs, local game dealers were closed down because they did not meet European. Union, European Commission, you know, nothing, nothing wrong with the Europe side of it, but th those rules were imposed by the British government and they had to close. So, you know, if you wanted to sell something into the food trade, you have to travel miles. Well, now you, you're more able to set up as a local food business and a lot of people are doing it. So, you know, guy who runs Dartmoor Deer Services does a lot of stuff with us, Tom Davis, he does deer boxes. Mike Robinson, the well-known game chef, does deer box, which is, uh, you know, delivers venison to people's homes. I met a guy uh, who runs Chilton Venison, um, and he used to commute to a, um, a job in electronics or something like that in somewhere on the M25 from his home in the Chilterns. Because he didn't have to commute, he got another four hours every day to play with. So he set up a little venison business and selling into local farm shops. Absolutely fantastic. Um, Jack Hills runs Exmoor Game, launched during lockdown again. That's just a re repackaging that's, that's that is a marketing operation for game he doesn't even doesn't even shoot his own game doesn't need to buys it in calls it a small game sells it on 
uh, and people buy it for that reason. And we're seeing some really big ones coming up. And one of the Somerset Sheets uh, has got a new vast game handling plant. And you will start to see its brand name all over the country in shops as it sort of promotes steel shot pheasant. And mm-hmm. So uh, good times, really. You know, people are making the investment, getting out there and, and, and selling, selling birds. You do, you do have to think, um, I mean, the, the, the big push in, in certainly in sheep anyway, you know, lamb production is, is the chop, you know, getting that to the, the affordable one. These are all sort of remarketed products, added value at, at the farm gate type thing. Is, it, is there much in supermarkets or, or not really? Well, not yet. Um, yeah. and, but I mean, the, the potential is there. So I went to see Jose Suto, who's a pretty well-known uh, game chef. And he does courses at Westminster Kingsway College in London, which teaches kids. So you get kids who want to be chefs. And, you know, yeah. they know a lot of the stuff that they, they would probably know. But game is a mystery to them. And Jose does a kind of complete introduction to game. And there's a kind of wonderful revelation moment in it where he takes a hair and he chops it up in front of the kids and he takes the back straps of a hair, which are not enormous, but they're there. And he says, look at that. He said, he says, you can get uh, something, I can't remember, something like five starters out of those back straps, which you can sell at 40 quid each. How much is that hair going to cost you? Five pounds in the trade. And you can yeah. sell it for 200. I mean, that's, yeah. that's you know, that's added value. Yeah. That's, that, oh, and then you, can see, you can see their little eyes going, oh, my God, a hair can make me rich. Uh, and, and and actually, I mean, they're similar, you know, when you're talking about chops, for example, when you're talking about added value and, and supermarkets, it's similar with farm animals. But but game has got that sort of you know, extra, I, I really want it, I will pay for yeah. I will pay more for it. It's, it's harder to get hold of that cachet, which, uh, which I, I think, you know, sensible chefs, uh, down in the West Country where I live, um, Cornwall has become a real kind of chefy centre. Um, and most of the chefs down there, obviously fish is a big thing down there, but sure. most of them have grabbed hold of game and are doing amazing work promoting it. Um, and, and all the chefs, all the TV chefs have, have gone out and, you know, have shot on television. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've got, you know, Jamie Oliver, I think he, they, they all went out to shoot wild boar at different times, didn't they? But Jamie Oliver, I think he cried and he shot his wild boar, but that was... Or maybe he didn't shoot his wild boar. Anyway, Gordon Ramsay uh, didn't cry, and uh, and he did shoot his wild boar. And, and, and uh, I think Marco Pierre actually laughed while he was shooting his wild boar. <laughs> Different character. <laughs> <laughs> Both ends of the spectrum aren't great, are they? Yeah, yeah. You, you just wonder if, if it's if it's in the industry's best interest to make it up. Maybe maybe bring down the price slightly, still aiming for that added value market with a small percentage. But if you can get it people are saying, what's for dinner? Venison and tatties. Then that's a larger market. You know, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not an economist. I mean, that, that, just... Venison is just in, on its face at the moment. You, you yeah. can't give it away. Cull programmes are not being met because they cannot sell the venison and they can't yeah. bear the thought of throwing it away. You know, So it, it's, it's tragic. Um, we, we need venison to have a, a value at, at yeah. point of delivery and it doesn't have one. Until yeah. it has one, not much we can do. No, it's a shame. Hopefully, hopefully it will, but and it will bounce back. You know, um, well, I hope it does anyway. Uh, well, we've went over a lot there, Charlie. I wanted to go on to. We've, we've talked about uh, Field Sports Channel. Uh, I see you've added a podcast, and, and funnily enough, I know a wee bit about podcasting. Uh, I just wondered how that's going for you. Is 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 it getting good views? Folk really enjoying it? Um, you know, 
I think I hope people are. Um, so it's uh, it's a slight cheat. It's 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 half a podcast and half not a podcast. And um, so we have a lot of long, very long form interviews that come off the back of what we do. Um, and uh, you know, you could be chatting to George Digweed, and there are people who will listen to George Digweed for twenty four hours because yeah. what he says is very very good. Yeah. But when you're trying to jam it into thirty minutes for Phil Sports Britain, we can't run it for so. We have got that interview, and uh, uh, we didn't spend a great deal of time editing it, but that maybe is its value. Uh, and so we can run that out as a podcast. Now, we stick that on a traditional podcast server, so we use Libsyn. What do you use? Are you Podbean or Libsyn? Anchor, actually. Oh, uh, oh, get you. It's about the 13, I think, or 15. Um, okay, well, you, 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 you know more, far more about it than I do. So we use one called Libsyn, and then we, but we, crucially, we also put it on YouTube as a film so yeah. it tends to get you know five to ten thousand views uh, on youtube because it's a film and it tends to get you know from a, a hardcore of travelers how many many of those in the last year who uh, who download it and listen to it, it tends to get sort of three to a thousand three hundred to a thousand views uh, listens sorry on the on, on the server um so youtube is kind of the main focus of that um but I mean, we 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 keep the movie going, we keep the movie running. Um, so you know, you could watch it. Uh, there's a comedian called Jeremy Hardy who referred to what most of what the BBC put out as uh, voluntary tinnitus. I, I think that's pretty well where we are with our podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, no, they're good views. I mean, mine mine's nowhere near that. I think I've got a total views at the minute, and how many have I got released? I'm releasing today the. Fifteenth, I've got in the ballpark of about five thousand, six thousand views. Uh, but in fairness, that started from nothing. That was I didn't have a field sports channel to say, you know. Uh, so I'm quite happy with that, to be honest. Yeah. You will. I mean, you know, as with all these things, you just have to sit and wait. Um, yeah. And uh, and and you you too will rise like scum. You know. I mean, it, <laughs> I, I did. So. Um, <laughs> I'm afraid that, that that's that's how these things work. That sometimes you think maybe there are little lurches, you know, somebody famous tweets you, and you know you get another little bunch of subscribers. Actually, the line is pretty constant. You're just going to yeah. kind of go up and up and up, yeah. and don't give up. Never maybe, give up. Maybe name drop and field sports channel, and this should help. Uh, <laughs> well, we call it the magic of field sports channel. <laughs> no, no, we don't. Okay. <laughs> obviously, obviously we shall we shall lend you our audience and then the, yeah <laughs> that, that will definitely do that um i've got two kind of more points uh Charlie. because it's not something i know loads about i've just got loads of questions robert was on the phone he was like say this say this say this <laughs> <laughs> so i'm not going to manage to say everything because uh, i don't want it to go on forever and i know you'll be busy but um it, when when you google your name uh, there's there's your sort of different channels and stuff like that, but it quite quick, quickly comes to uh, uh, stuff on TV appearances. And normally, when you find someone's TV appearances, they're quite positive. Yours aren't. Um, is is TV something that almost works against this type of industry? I mean, the, the headline is this morning: viewers disgusted by guest attempting to defend trophy hunting. You know, it, that that headline struggles to bring positives. Um, you know. Okay, so so I think I think we've hit on a really really important point here, and one of the reasons why we are probably better placed than uh, other larger media organisations. So um, 
if you take terrestrial TV as a thing, you know, Channel 4, Channel 5, BBC, ITV, that sort of thing, um, they belong to a world, they culturally, they kind of belong to a world of characterised by the man on the air ministry roof who's reading the weather. So yeah. he's standing there and there's the weather's happening behind him and yet he's telling you what the weather is and he's sort of talking down to you. He's, you know, and that is a very kind of, that, that is a very terrestrial broadcaster way of doing things. Yeah. And many of our kind of, many, many of our detractors across terrestrial, to, uh, many of them have jobs in terrestrial broadcasting, um, have that attitude. You are standing on the ministry roof, you're telling your viewers what to think. The Daily Mirror, um, and, and uh, you know, which is typically the, the paper that runs these stories. Similarly, if we tell our view, if we tell our readers what to think, they will vote Labour. Um, and what's happened to the media consuming audience, which I think many of these people have not spotted, um, is uh, and they're you know they're much more highly paid than me, but I still think they they're being a bit dim about this. Is it has moved from uh, well, it's moved far more into a, a kind of into being characterized by the motto i'll be the judge of that so a media consuming audience is far far better informed than it was 20 years ago it has access to enormous amounts of real life facts some of them pretty spurious but you know they are they'll come with the capital f of facts and they will be able to listen to what people are saying and and disagree with it um and they are able to look at at headlines monstering people and disagree with it but this came out to me most strongly I did, a, I did a thing called urban foxes live um with uh, um brian may and three uh, rspca vets uh and i was the evil fox killer so you go on that show and it's filmed in front of it's beautifully lit amazing production values filmed in front of battersea power station looks amazing uh and they have a fox cub on brian's lap and three vets who love foxes who hate hunting and me. So who's going to be the obvious winner from that? Actually, uh, in TV land, you also have four people bullying one person. And only Brian was bright enough to, to work that out. And he very quickly during the interview joined my side to make me less of an obvious victim. So make it less likely that people will feel sorry for me. Do you see what I mean? It, it's, it was a very weird thing. And I didn't, I, I didn't know this at the time. And I was trying to, you know, rationalize, why is Brian being so nice and defending me? You know, and then it was only with a, you know, a, a, a half a minute to go that I worked it out. And I was able to kind of play on that. And, you know, here I am being torn apart by wild animal lovers and things like that. So, um, so, so you know, media, media works in a very different way to the way it used to. Um, and and the ability of the audience to make up its own mind is is paramount, and that's particularly characterised by what you're doing, you know, with your podcast and what we're doing with YouTube. We are not telling people to think this or that. The reason that people listen to us and continue to listen to us, watch us, is we put an arm around our viewers, and we say, look, this is what we think, and it's fine if you don't think that, you know, whatever you think, whatever you want to think, but this is this is this is how and why and what we think. Uh, and and people really appreciate that it's 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 kind of less patronizing less kind of uh, you know on on top of them yeah yeah and and i think i i totally agree with that that's the way i've always went of this is what i know this is what i think i'm not going to tell you what to think you know we, we we're both in industries that we deal with aunties whichever type of aunties they might be um and, you know, the main one, certainly in our industry, and I assume it's the main one in your industry, is veganism. 
And I have always, always said the many merits of, merits of veganism, spe specifically at certain times of the year in this country, you know, summer we're producing a lot of great crops. Veganism has a lot of benefits. And in different countries, the environmental benefit of veganism is high. But in our country, I feel it's better not to be. You know, that's the way I look at it. Health-wise, you know, from a, from a welfare perspective, if you if you ethically don't believe an animal should be killed for a gain, again, I'm not going to change your your mind on that. That's fair. Uh, but how 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 are you guys dealing with antis as an industry? <clears throat> they are an industry. They really are. Well, in in various different ways, you know. Um, I mean, people who wear black balaclavas and go out and 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 threaten kids at weekends, um, we expose them if we can. Uh, okay. You have to, you know, under the rules of YouTube, you have to be careful how you do that. Absolutely. Uh, but, I mean, you know, we, we, we can do that. Uh, the, um, the kind of the corporate ends, the money-making ends, we try to expose the hypocrisy. And we have got this wonderful thing now called the Field Sports Nation, which is our group of supporters. And not only do they, you know, they give us five pounds a month and we give them their own special show to watch, but also they get involved in the programme making. So, you know... Uh, Richard Taylor is one of them, is, is really good at reading balance sheets. So he can read the financial reports from organisations from the RSPB downwards and go, this is what they're trying to hide. This is, this, this is the bit you should go in on. So we're, we're much better informed at things like that. And these people often call themselves charities and have to be incredibly you know, transparent in the way they report their financial, uh, you know, where they get their money and where it goes. Um, so, so that's that's a good thing. Um, we are obviously just like any news organisation able to expose hypocrisy. Some of these hypocrisies are very deep rooted, um, and and it is hard to get our story onto the next level. But we have very good relationships with people in the national news. And although I'm not sure the national news is as taken seriously as it used to be, it it kind of helps. Um, yeah. You know, it 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 looks serious. One of the people who back us through the Field Sports Nation, uh, two, two of the people who back us through the Field Sports Nation are also the people behind GB News. Now, we don't do anything formally with GB News, but, you know, we, we are at that level of, of, of media investor now, which is, which is I think, quite important, really. Um, and, again, gives us a sort of credibility that allows us, perversely, to talk to people like The Guardian and, and, and the BBC and things like that. So um, it, it's, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot to it. Um, we're t we've turned into a, an advocacy project. Um, the, probably the best thing, according to our viewers, that we do is to produce videos that explain hunting, shooting, fishing as things that real life human beings do and videos that they can send to their mates and say that you don't really understand why I go hunting, but this video will tell you. And, and, I, and I, hope, I hope that is, you know, I, I'm quite pleased that is the, the thing they like the most. Um, David and I are both journalists. We love the idea of getting this story in there. So I'm yeah. going, back to, going back to Brian May. Can I just tell you one story about Brian May? Yeah. Maybe not. All right, okay. So I heard on the grapevine down in Somerset that uh, Brian May was letting the deer stalking on his land. Now, this is a massive hypocrisy moment. This is, you know, humbug. Uh, the kind that any newspaper would be overjoyed to print. So I rang up my friend Kevin on the Sunday Times and said, guess what? 
And he said, okay, he said, I'll look into it. And Kevin is, he's not, he was not a typical, he's, he's actually left sometimes since then. He's not a typical journalist. He used to be, a, he used to run a business in Brighton. You know, he's got his feet are planted very much you know, on the ground. So he went down to Dorset and he started asking around and people in Dorset said, oh, it's terrible. Brian May won't let us go shooting in that woodland at all. And he said, yeah, well, that's not really a story. Um, so I said, well, have you tried the game dealer? So Kevin, I was great. I didn't have to do any legwork at all. I was just on the end of the phone. So Kevin went off to the game dealer and the game dealer said, aha, Mr. May, yes, would you like to see the receipts? Now, all the time this is going on, uh, the people who run Brian May's wildlife sanctuary outside Guildford are sending Kevin uh, emails going, Mr. May wouldn't touch the hair on the head of single deer. Don't you worry. It's all, you know, he's absolutely, he loves animals. It's fine. And then, of course, Kevin has got the receipts now for the deer carcasses that have come off Brian May's land. Okay, uh, the email changes slightly. Mr. May allows the culling of certain sick deer in certain circumstances. Ah, oh, sick deer going into the food chain, good story. And uh, anyway, this goes on until eventually on Saturday and the, you know, the paper is out on Sunday. So we're getting pretty close to the wire. Uh, Kevin is sitting with the guy who does the shooting uh, at his home in South Wales. And Brian May rings up and basically says, it's a fair cop, you know, you got me governor, I'll come quietly. And, um, and Kevin gets his story and it's absolutely magnificent. I think it was the front page and Brian May is just, I mean, pretty well withdrew from the, from the animal anti-hunting debate at that point. It was a significant win, you know, for us in the, in the there's something of the chase about this. <laughs> I'm afraid so I really I enjoy tell. it. I can tell. <laughs> so sorry, Brian, poor Brian, shouldn't have kicked me around the studio. There you go. But it was uh, it was a it was a joy to do. It was an absolute joy to do, and um, and that's when it goes right. And there are many 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 times when it just doesn't. So there you go. I'm sure uh, I'm sure Robert would be angry if I didn't mention that uh, one of your five pound a month patrons is Robert as well. So, um, Ex- excellent man, good. <laughs> He's just growing in my estimation every time you mention. <laughs> Jess said last week. Actually, we we're talking. About this. She tried to sign up, but she couldn't manage. But I'm sure she'll get on soon enough as well. Um, okay, well, just basically get some handcuffs, put put them on the keyboard. Don't let her off until she's done. <laughs> uh, how much commission do I get for that? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, um, <laughs> we're. I'm conscious of time, Charlie, and I know you'll be busy. And you're in a hotel room. And we started this at seven in the morning. I don't want to hold you too much uh, back. But just one short question, and then I've got two questions that I always finish off with. Just two short ones. But um, Matt, I think Matt covered Holly. Um, got bronze in Tokyo just yesterday or the day before uh, in, in the shooting competition. Is is that sort of thing, you know, seeing shooting as an Olympic sport, does that get young folk in or, or is, is shooting inanimate objects a totally different thing to hunting? No, I, I think that there, are, there, are, there are two things going on there. I mean, our, our horse riders who've got gold, you know, many of them started out in the hunting fields. Uh, Matt Card, Holly, you know, all, all our shooters, generally speaking, shoot pheasants as well. Um, so for, I was talking to Peter Wilson, who got gold in London 2012, and, and he said you know, at that time he was given these terrible strictures by uh, the Olympic Committee here. You know, you're not allowed to mention game shooting, you're not allowed to besmirch clay shooting with live animals, things like that. Um, and, uh, and so Peter stuck to that at the time, but since then has become really vocal. And, you know, we have to, it, it, is, a, it is a problem, this sort of mild, cancel culture that goes on for for game shooting for for you know for stalking all that kind of thing um, and we, we just got to you know try and stamp it out where we see it so 
Yeah, I, Olympics is always a good thing. It tends to be uh, a, a sort of a, a mild hostage situation with, uh, with, with politicians. So when you hear a politician going, shooting should be banned, then you can go, but Matt just won a gold medal at the Olympics for it. And they go, well, right, shooting apart from Matt winning a gold medal at the Olympics should be banned. And, you know, it sort of dilutes their message a bit. Um, I hope it has a positive effect on kids. You know, the pathway to uh, Paris and, and uh, the Olympics after that uh, is, is there for anybody to do. Shooting is an incredibly accessible sport. I've, you know, I've always said, just actually on the top, Subject, related subject of stalking, from a standing start in any city in the UK, you can go stalking faster, more easily and more cheaply than you can get a game of tennis or a game of golf with a professional. You know, right. uh, so, uh, so, you know, we, we, are, we are in exactly the right place. Uh, we have this thing in Matt's hands that goes bang. We have a clay pigeon that explodes, you know, visually so much more exciting than golf. We could, if with a little bit of investment, do really good things on telly with that. So, you know, there are, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to be done there. Um, uh, but broadly speaking, it, it, it is positive. My, the worry is that, you know, we have things like the Birmingham 2022 Commonwealth Games, where Birmingham appears to be embarrassed about its past as the kind of the factory that made all the guns in the world and doesn't want shooting events. And, you know, uh, that, that kind of politicisation of of sports uh, for pure, pure ideological gains, if that's what they think they're getting, mm -hmm. is nuts. You know, it almost brought the, the Commonwealth Games to its knees because the big metal witness, India, uh, were on the point of pulling out. Um, I mean, I would have been happier if India had gone through with that and pulled out because of that, but unfortunately they didn't. They were. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll gloss over the fact of the golf statement because we'll just get to an argument. <laughs> <laughs> I a waste of good farming land. <laughs> well, yeah, good point. But <laughs> um, yeah, we, we've really went around and, and I appreciate uh, the time to talk there, Charlie. So that's been good. Uh, I always finish off the conversations with, uh, first off, where do you see yourself in five years? And second off, which is probably kind of a two-party question for yourself, if you had any tips for folk coming into industry, so that could be hunting or even YouTube uh, for yourself, what, what would they be? Okay, well, uh, five, five years' time, I mean, uh, it's, uh, uh, yeah, I hope not underground. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I do too, yeah. Yeah, I, let's, let, I mean, doing, doing what I'm doing, if, if you, it is unquestionably the best job in the world to run a YouTube channel, you know, uh, whatever it is. If it's something which you enjoy doing, like hunting, shooting, fishing, like I do, it is doubly the best job in the world. Uh, it's it's something you have to push at. Yeah. Uh, you have to, you know, maintain uh, good relations with your kind of your support group, your wife and your children. Um, you have to work doubly hard at that as well. Um, but it's, I would say, it's worth it. Um, it's where it's where the audience is at the moment. Um, there's a sort of feeling that the media center of gravity is among the old fashioned terrestrial broadcasters and old fashioned publishers. But I think the real audience is heart and soul in social media and for me, social TV. So if anybody going into that, just keep believing, keep doing it, keep doing it. You will get there. It is a grind, but you will get there. If anybody moving into country sports generally, anybody who wants to do that, the, the best thing you can do is, is find somebody who has the time to 
you know, encourage you if you're a kid and you want to go into gamekeeping, knock on the door of a local gamekeeper and say, I will carry, I will, I will fetch and carry for you and you know until I get enough experience. And and it will grow from there, you know, allow it, allow it to develop. It's too easy to say just go to a gamekeeping college. That that's that's a good idea, but start by helping out locally if you possibly can. And I'd say that probably applies to, I mean, almost anywhere, you know, want to get into gunsmithing. There are some very good projects run by the Gunmakers Livery Company in London, uh, which will help you do that. But you can't do better than going down to your local gun shop and saying, can I get a Saturday job working here, please? Yeah. Um, that, that, that's, that's my opinion. Excellent. No, I would say so. It's normally a pretty similar answer to that question. It's just work hard and get yourself out there. Um, yeah. Um, can I can we can can I put in a, a question for you? Can we have a can we have a heated debate about farming very very briefly? Can if you want, eh? Yeah. So uh, I mean, I, I I sort of see a kind of weird supply arrangement, you know, between let's say you know vegans, hunters, farmers. Um, so a kind of triangle. Mm-hmm. Now, vegans don't particularly like farmers, but they put up with them because they supply them with all the stuff they get to eat. Vegans hate hunters clearly. Mm-hmm. Hunters have a slightly unbalanced relationship with farmers. You know, they need the land. Many farmers shoot, so they're, yep. they're, they're kind of close, but it's not a kind of normal relationship. And of course, shooters deeply mistrust vegans. But I see that changing, you know, over time. Um, I think uh, vegans are going to perhaps start falling out of love with farmers as a thing, you know, as a, as a media entity because they're going to start sourcing their food from South America, you know, and their food is going to go international because the DEFRA plan is basically to move the countryside back to to nature. I see gamekeepers as becoming more important in running the countryside. And actually, when you look at it, hunters, shooters have more in common with vegans than they do with farmers, really. Mm -hmm. It's just vegans have this weird thing about not eating meat. I mean, hunters, shooters are all about local produce are all about yeah. you know what what they what they get from the land I, I almost see farming drifting off slightly and and the hunter vegan kind of cultural link becoming the really important when i say vegan i mean the sort of mm-hmm. you know unthinking yeah. consumer of food but let, let's let's call them vegans for the time being and, and i see that sort of that being the kind of central relationship in 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 the, what the countryside supplies yes so, am I right, or is that complete nonsense? So, first off, uh, Charlie Jacoby sees a future where hunters and vegans coerce. Uh, interesting. Uh, no, um, so, first off, uh, you say the reason for that branching off uh, agriculture further away from the hunting and vegan side, sort of keeping that a bit of an isosceles triangle. Um, the first issue with that is you're saying veganism is going to be sourcing food from elsewhere, South America, you know, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Just not here. Um, If you're a vegan from a welfare perspective, that makes sense. But what the vast majority of vegans are, vegan for environmental perspective, that doesn't make sense. So I don't see why that would happen. If it does, it's pretty hypocritical. Um, Is hunting closer to the the vegan side and the vegan argument than agriculture yes but i only mean from a shooting perspective and the reason i say that is we're talking about this country so deer yeah let's talk deer out in the wood uh, walking around dead you know that's how it works the agricultural uh, narrative is out in a field 
rushed in a stressful manner into a trailer, stressful journey in a trailer, get to a market and bid on, stressful journey in a trailer, uh, into this place, what's happening, killed. So that's obviously worse than the, the shooting side, not necessarily the fishing side. So do I see vegans going towards that side if they stick by the sort of reason that they're vegan no do i see it happening because of what you're saying yes it's a very round the way answer and probably a very political answer but that's how i see it no i think i i i do think you need to qualify your answer it is is a very complex. you know we're used to making binary judgments and binary choices and i'm asking you to make a sort of a three-way uh, choice. Just on that, what is the future with it, in that context? What is the future of of, of UK farming? So the the future. I don't know if you've seen my page, Charlie. Uh, you're probably just aware of the YouTube channel. That the main background of what I do is on Facebook, and the push I'm going for, and and a lot of people are, is is just sourcing local where possible, trying to create this market in the UK because Brexit's happened. Don't ask me anything about Brexit. I literally know nothing about politics. Uh, we're going to strike deals with Australia, with with what well, we have with Australia, probably well with the likes of the US, stuff like that. And the standards in a lot of these places are lower. Um, you know, you've got uh, treated chicken, you've got uh, hormone-induced beef, stuff like that. I think that, unfortunately, is the future. And I think the future future is petri dish growing food, uh, you know, that sort of thing, scrapings of beef um, uh, cells and, and made into meat products. I think that's the future and I think that's where we're heading. I don't want that. I think what we have to do is push the local narrative and the sort of sense if you help next door, the world helps you. Uh, do I know what the future is? No, I think it's that petri dish way, but I think we really have to, like you guys are doing, push the narrative that surely is good for the countryside and good for uh, good for us looking at our environmental footprint. <clears throat> well, if you come back to what we have to do, I mean, the sense of responsibility for the land is vested in either farming the land or hunting, mm -hmm. and fishing the land. So uh, if, you, if you lose that, if you know, swap that out for a civil servant who then manages large areas who perhaps you know, under them, modern way rewilds it if that's what they want to call it then that's an environmental disaster so yeah i i, I just one one thing uh, I, I really enjoyed was there's a wonderful labor politician called rodri morgan who um okay. the late rodri morgan used to be secretary of state for wales and i saw him give a speech once and he said uh, he said as far i'll try i'll try to do the accent so forgive me if, if, if the accent is terrible he said as far as we worked out in labor he said china is the world's factory and india is the world's office he said, South America is the world's breadbasket. He said, Africa will continue to be the world's tragedy. He said, Europe is the world's old people's home. And he said, we haven't quite worked out what North America is yet, but we think it's got something to do with arms and the entertainment industry. <laughs> <laughs> but um, unfortunately, within that, you know, he's predicting the globalization of food supply. And for the, for the mass market, we're going to see food coming from horrible polythene-covered areas of Almeria in Spain, for example, or, or you know, as you say, coronated chicken. Uh, and I, I can't see a way around that until people develop, no. develop a conscience, or as I call it, a pair, and uh, go out and actively source their food locally. If you're in Islington, 
it's very difficult to relate to where your food comes from. So you might Absolutely. as well buy a rubbish sandwich from somewhere else. Um, yeah, it's it's a marketing job, isn't it? We're both doing that. Well done, us. <laughs> and it's and it's a, there's a certain privilege that comes with knowing where your food comes from, you know. And I, I work with RET, which you might not have heard of, Charlie, but is the Royal Highland Education Trust, which is basically just it's, it's mainly farming, but there's certainly there's certainly um, hunting and stuff involved as well. But it's it's getting sort of food into classroom, and so many kids parents teachers you know just don't know and it's teaching that however we do it whether we do it this way we do it in schools i think we've just got to sort of lead our life by by guiding that narrative but uh, the the future i unfortunately i'm not very optimistic about but hopefully we can push it in the right direction uh, but we could sit here forever uh, i'm, I'm going to cut this now <laughs> uh, but thank you to everyone that's listened if, uh, if you've came here from hearing, uh, you know, if you've maybe typed in Field Sports Channel and unfortunately you've come up with My Ugly Mug as opposed to the actual channel, uh, welcome and maybe drop a subscribe. Uh, and if you're listening on Spotify, anything like that, uh, and you're thinking, oh, I wonder if this guy does any more, you're probably not thinking that about me, but um, just jump onto Rural 2 Kitchen on Facebook and Instagram and you'll sort of see where everything really happens. And if you want to see more of Charlie and somehow you've came across me, not Charlie, which I very much doubt, as Field Sports Channel, if you want to check that out. So thank you very much, Charlie. We'll speak to you later on. Thanks a million. Thanks so much.